0: I invite you to open your Bibles or your app to Hebrews chapter 2. Preachers are so used to saying open your Bibles, I think now we need to start saying open your app, your device, whatever you store your scripture on, open it. To Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to begin with verse 9 in just a moment. If I was to say this phrase, space, the final frontier, what am I talking about? huh? Star Trek. You can talk back. This is live. I'm actually here. I can hear you, okay? You can talk back. And I can see you, by the way. Space, the final frontier. What was their mission? What was the mission of the Starship Enterprise? To boldly go where no man has gone before. That spirit of pioneer started in 1966, believe it or not. that It had a five-year mission, according to the mission statement. I think it only lasted four years, but it's been going on for 50 years. They're still making movies, still making spin-off television shows and all that. It's that idea of the pioneer, one who has led the way, in this case, with Star Trek, where no one has gone before. The title of our message today is The Author of Salvation. And that word author means pioneer. And I want you to get this this morning. I want you to see... As I've studied this passage this week, I share with Gary even this morning, I just hope I don't mess this up. This is too good of of truth from God's Word. So let's dig in to Hebrews chapter 2. I'm just going to read the first few verses. We'll get to the others in a moment, starting in verse 9. But we do not see Him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor. So that, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise, and again I will put my trust in Him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. I want you to see in this first section just the power of Jesus. It's interesting that up till this point we've seen the supremacy of Christ outlined in the first chapter, but His name's not mentioned yet. Last week we looked at just the first few verses of chapter two about how how could we possibly neglect this great salvation that Jesus has come to provide for us. And he talks a little bit about the glory of man, about the fact man was crowned, man was given dominion over everything. Back in the Garden of Eden, God said, you shall have dominion over the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, over everything. And that dominion and that fellowship relationship with God was broken through sin. And so God had a plan. Wasn't any of it an accident. God had a purpose from the very beginning. The plan was to send Jesus Christ. And the writer of Hebrews says, we don't see Him who is made for a little while lower than the angels. And you think, now wait a minute. Jesus, Creator God, who created the angels, how could He possibly be at any time lower than the angels? Well, the Bible says that He emptied Himself. Took on the form of a servant. And so, yes, He was fully God, but when He came to earth, God incarnate, He was also fully man. Made for a little while, short time, about 33 years Lower than the angels, but He didn't stay there. He ultimately has gone back seated at the right hand of the Father. Fully God, fully man. We don't see Him who was made for a little while lower than the angels. But here's what did happen. Because of the suffering of death, He's been crowned with glory and honor. The word suffering means hardship or pain. It means affliction. Yes, Jesus Christ came to the cross and was crucified. Now, step back a minute. Who's he writing this letter to? The author of Hebrews is writing this to Hebrews. He's writing it to Jews. He's probably writing it to a small house church, probably in Rome, that had Jewish Christians, but also had Jewish non Christians. Some who were hearing the message of the gospel, but here was their big conflict a suffering Savior? Old Testament prophecy, 330 prophecies in the Old Testament regarding Christ. Jesus fulfilled every single one of them. Unfortunately, the people of that day missed the part about Him being a suffering Savior. They had painted a picture in their mind of a Savior that was going to come in riding a white horse, and He was going to take over. The Jews had been persecuted incredibly up to that time, and they were just waiting on a Redeemer. They were waiting on a Savior And God sent him one, but he didn't ride in on a white horse. In fact, the only thing we see him ride on was a donkey. And the Jews struggle with that. This can't possibly be the Messiah. One who came humbly. And then the worst part of it is, he died. And for crying out loud, where did he die? He died on the cross. Nothing in a Jew's mind more heinous than that. And yet, through his suffering, he was perfected. Now, let me explain the word perfected. It literally means complete. doesn't mean that Jesus wasn't perfect. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He was spotless. He was perfect from before time began because there is no time in God's economy. He's been perfect. But His mission was completed at the cross. If He hadn't gone to the cross, mission wouldn't be completed. It's amazing how many other religions in the world look at the cross and think somehow it was an accident. It shouldn't have happened. One group of people that used to sell flowers to you on the roadside felt like everything was good up until the fact they killed Jesus. And that messed up God's plan, so they had to send another Savior. Guess what his name was, according to these people? The Reverend Sun Myung Moon. (laughs) They thought God kind of went, oops, how'd that happen? No, listen, from the very beginning that's been God's plan. From the very beginning, God had a plan for His Son to come and be born, to live a perfect life, and then to suffer death on the cross. But folks, He hadn't stayed the suffering Savior. He's once again been crowned with glory and honor. The crown is that word Stephen that we get the word Stephen from. Crown. It's that garl or a wreath that would be given to the winner of a race placed on their head. That's what's been given to Jesus. Not the crown of thorns that He wore on the cross. The folks, He's been given a new crown. It's the crown of glory and honor by the grace of God. That He would taste of death for everyone. You hear the word taste, and I don't know what comes to your mind. This isn't a sampling. This isn't like going to the Sam's Buffet and trying the samples. Y'all know what I mean by the Sam's Buffet? Sam's Club. I said that to somebody. I said, I didn't know they had a buffet at Sam's. I'm like, you're not right there at the right time, you know. You can go to Sam's. If you're hungry, you just hit about five of those stations and you can get enough for supper. You know what I'm saying? But that's not they're not just giving you something on a cracker. <laughs> when Jesus tasted death, it's a Hebrew metaphor for to partake of fully. He gulped the entire thing in one swallow. Jesus tasted death. He suffered death. In the Old Testament times, kings would have people taste things for them. Nehemiah was the cupbearer for King Artaxerxes, but they had cupbearers, they had tasters, why? Because poison, they wanted to make sure nobody had slipped poison into the food, so they would have a taste tester that came out and tested it, and if they lived, they'd eat it. (laughs) How would you like that job, by the way? Man, the king's not real popular this year, I'm a little nervous about this chicken (laughs) I'm about to have to eat. So when Jesus tasted death, it wasn't just a sampling, folks. He took all of it so that you and I don't have to experience that kind of death. We live forever through Jesus Christ. So through the suffering of death, He was crowned with glory and honor. He tasted death for everyone. And then catch this phrase, for it was fitting for Him. Now, who's the author addressing? He's back to those people that would say, that's not fitting. That's inappropriate. That's against God's character. But men and women, listen, it was perfectly in keeping with God's character. Why? Because there had to be a payment for sin. And so God, because He loved us, sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross. And so when the writer of Hebrews says it was fitting for Him, He's speaking directly to those people who they are struggling with that thought, that it's fitting for Him. Listen, the writer did not hide the cross from the people He's writing to. He brings it front and center in in the second chapter of Hebrews. He says, you've got to deal with the cross. You can't dismiss it. It's central in the faith. And because of that, he has brought many sons to glory to perfect the author of salvation through suffering. Watch this. He sanctifies. Literally means to make pure or holy or blameless. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. What's he talking about? He's talking about relationship, kinship. We all belong to God the Father. He has sanctified us, made us pure and holy. Now, let me ask you something. Do you ever Do you feel holy? The reason we struggle with that term is because all we see is the fact that we still mess up. So we are holy positionally in Christ. My, my children don't always do everything I want them to do, but they've never quit being my children. As a child of God, there's probably times, not probably, okay, let's confess. There are times that I don't do everything right. There are times I think the wrong thing, say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing. But I'm a child of God, a child of the King. The Bible says a joint heir with Christ, seated with Him in Heavenly places. So we've got to understand in God's economy, positionally, we've been pronounced holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. We struggle with that, and yet that's the truth of the gospel. He who sanctifies has sanctified us. We're now morally, we're now pure positionally in Christ. And listen to this He's not ashamed to call us brothers. Folks, you've got to let that sink in. Jesus Christ calls you. Brother, why? Not because of anything you did, but because of his death on the cross, paying the penalty for your sin. When you receive him as Lord and Savior, he says, "I'm not ashamed to call you my brother." Now, the thing that convicts us is: Are there times we're ashamed to call him our Savior? Are there times? You know, I don't. I don't know that God has a wallet in heaven. People don't keep pictures in a wallet anymore. But you, remember, you used to grandparents especially open their wallet. <laughs> And that plastic thing fell out with all the pictures of the grandkids. Now we store them on our phones, right? I don't know that God has an iPhone in heaven or a wallet with the stuff. But if He did, He'd point and say, that's mine. I'm so proud of her. I'm so proud of Him. Why? Because that's my child. They've been made pure. They're holy because of Christ. Not because of them, but because of Christ. And He is now not ashamed to call us brothers. The word literal for shame means disfigurement or disgrace. You and I walk through life sometimes figuring like, God, don't even look at me. I'm disfigured. And God says, what are you talking about? And we say, well, what about my sin? And God says, in Christ, I paid for your sin. It's gone. I don't see that anymore when I look at you. Isn't that a good thing to know? When God looks at us, He doesn't see our past. He sees who we are in Christ. God's not ashamed of you. How about the defeat of the enemy then? Let's look at verses 14, 15, and 16. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death He might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, He does not give help to angels, but He gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, because of what God's done, because of what Jesus did through the cross, because we were flesh and blood, what did He do? He became just like us. He took on flesh and blood. In fact, the word order is actually blood and flesh. Jesus took on the same skin, the same body as us. He became flesh and blood because we were. Why? So that He could render death powerless. Because we share flesh and blood, which means to associate with. It's The word koinonia means c- communion. We have association with flesh and blood. Jesus did something that was unnatural for Him. and He partook. In fact, the word partook means To take hold of something that is not naturally yours. What did Jesus do? Philippians chapter 2. Didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Literally be clung or held on to. But emptied himself of that. And took on the form of us, of man. Was born as a little helpless babe. Laid in a manger. Lived a perfect life. Preached for about three years. Died on the cross. Rose again. Why did he do all that? The two results of him doing that is, first of all, he knows what we've gone through. We're going to look at it in just a minute, but he knows the struggles of human life. He knows the temptations that you face. But he also did it so that he could die. Because to be forgiven of sin required a sacrifice. In the Old Testament, that sacrifice were bulls and goats, sometimes even birds, But it was all pointing to the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ that was to come. And here's what he did through his death. He rendered powerless him who had power over death. Namely, Satan. This is amazing. He rendered powerless. The only way to destroy Satan was to rob him of his power. So how did Jesus do that? If you have a more powerful weapon than the enemy, the enemy's weapon becomes powerless. You ever heard the phrase, don't bring a knife to a gunfight? That's what Satan did. Satan brought death to a life fight. The greatest power that Satan has was the power of death. And I think the greatest power since then Satan has is the power of fear. Jesus dealt with both of them. He took the one who had power over death and he experienced death. And what did he do? He conquered it. He didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead on the third day. He defeated death. In fact, one interesting thing that I never thought of before this week, I got to back up. It says he's not ashamed to call us brothers. Do you know he never referred to his followers as brothers until after the resurrection? Isn't that interesting? He called them sheep. He called them disciples. He called them followers. But he now calls us brother. In fact, when's the first time he referred to his followers as brothers? To Mary after the resurrection. At the tomb. What did he say to Mary? Go tell my brothers. In fact, he tells her, Go tell my brothers to go ahead of me to Galilee. I'll meet them there. And they didn't even do that. He had to go meet him in the upper room and finally meet him in Galilee later. So he's not ashamed to call us brothers. And through his death, he's removed the power that Satan had. And he has freed us from the fear of death. Some people have said the greatest fear some people have is public speaking. I think truly the greatest fear a lot of people have is the fear of death. I've heard people say, you know, I'm, I'm not really afraid of death. I just don't want to suffer. But you know, as a pastor, I've sat in the room or I've stood by a bedside of people that were dying. And I've never had an experience yet where the person dying was afraid. Why? Because in Christ, He gives you dying grace. He takes away the fear. I've had people specifically tell me within the last year, I'm not afraid to die. Why? It's kind of like Paul. Listen, whether I stay or whether I go, Whether I remain here in this body or whether I die and go to be with the Lord. It's a victory. Because I know the end of the story. So this grip that Satan had on us, this fear of death. Jesus Christ conquered that and has set us free. In fact, the phrase he uses after that is, we were subject to that all our lives. Here's the way Paul put it, quoting The prophet Hosea, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55, O death, where is your victory? O grave, where is your sting? Jesus' death on the cross has set us free from a lifetime of slavery. I know that we've experienced slavery in this country. In the first century, the time of Christ, in the Old Testament, the first years of the New Testament, typically slavery wasn't for life. It was Normally, to pay off a debt, it could be for seven years, and there was years of jubilee and those kind of things where slaves were set free. Problem is, without Christ, we're a slave to death that there's no freedom from that. Ultimately, we'll face our greatest fear apart from Christ. And you're going to die. Well, chances are, if Jesus doesn't come back, I'm going to die too. But I don't have to be afraid. Why? Because death is not the end. It just ushers me into the presence of God. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So the day that I breathe my last, my next moment, I'll be in the presence of my Savior. And folks, that's a freedom from fear that you only experience in Jesus Christ. I don't want to be overly morbid, but if you've ever been to a funeral of someone who nobody thought had any hope, it it is a sad occasion. Now funerals have a sad element to them. Have you ever been to a funeral that was a celebration? Why? Because that person is now, they've lived their life. They glorified God in their life. They're now with God. The Bible says we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. The person that died is not the one walking through the valley. We are because we don't understand it. We don't see the other side. But through scripture, we understand the truth of death. It ushers us in the presence of God. There's no reason to fear it anymore. So freed us from this lifelong bondage. And then lastly, I want you to see the mercy of Jesus. Big word. Well, that was only a few letters. <laughs> Five letters. But important word. Last two verses. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Folks, just those two verses. That's good news. He had to become like us so that he could be what? A merciful and faithful high priest. What's that referring to? The Old Testament. Who approached God in the Old Testament? The high priest. They had this thing called the Holy of Holies. There was a veil separating man from the things of God. But mercy was not a requirement of the priest. The priest was not merciful. In fact, the priest went behind the veil to beg for mercy. Some translations even use the word compassion here. Let me tell you, there's a big difference in the word compassion and merciful. In fact, to truly show mercy, you've got to act to alleviate somebody's pain. It's Mother's Day. We've had four children. I've watched my wife go through the process of childbirth. And even when she was pregnant, I just jokingly sometimes would say, I know just what you're going through. And she'd kind of look at me like, you're an idiot. You have no idea what I'm going through. And they try to, they try to describe the pain of childbirth by some pain that we as men might suffer. There is no such thing. And it's amazing to me, not long after childbirth, women are ready to have another one. But men, we can't be merciful. Why? Because we've never given birth to a child. How is Jesus merciful? He's merciful because he's gone through everything we've gone through. And so not only is he a faithful, trustworthy high priest, but he's a merciful high priest. And he has made propitiation. Big word. And some of you are going, what? What are you talking about? In fact, some translations mistranslate this word and they use the word atonement, folks. Bigger than atonement propitiation. We need to understand what it means. Propitiation means this. It means to appease or to put away divine wrath. Did you know that before Christ, before you come to Christ, you're an enemy of God? Why? Because we're sinners. God's holy. He can't tolerate sin. But He loved us so much in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Big theological word but a huge concept to get. He has appeased. Jesus Christ through his death on the cross did something you and I couldn't do. We could not appease a holy God. Jesus did it. He was our propitiation. And then it's interesting. For since he himself was tempted. Did you know that? Do you know Jesus was tempted? He said, "Well, yeah, yeah, we know about, you know, the big 3." Right after Jesus was baptized, go back to Matthew chapter 4, and it's in the other Gospels, when Jesus was baptized, it says right after that, he was led into the wilderness, into the desert, literally, to be tempted of Satan. I think he was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. We only see the big three at the end of that. And what were the big temptations? Here's what Satan tried, not only then, but throughout Jesus' ministry. we see him pop his head up other times. He tried to thwart the purpose of God. Hey, you've come to rule the world. Bow down and worship me. I'll make that happen for you. You're hungry? Turn the stones into bread. Take care of your physical needs. What does Jesus do every time? Quote Scripture, finally says, Satan, get away from me. And if you read carefully, it says, Satan left him and went away to wait for a more opportune time. Folks, we see it even at the cross. Well, we see it even before that. When Peter says, when Jesus talks about the fact he's going to die, Peter says, no way, we're not going to let that happen. And Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan, because what you're saying is coming right out of the mouth of the enemy. Then even when Jesus was dying on the cross, there was temptation there. What were the people saying? Hey, why don't you prove your God? Come down off the cross. One of the thieves that was dying next to him said, Hey, why don't you prove your God? Jump down off the cross and by the way, take me with you. Jesus was tempted. In fact, Hebrews 4.15, just write this thing. You need to check this out. We're going to get there in a few weeks. But just to give you a preview, Listen. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Now, just in case you think you're special, and you're thinking nobody's ever experienced a temptation that I've experienced. The Bible says there's no new temptation. Okay, The way you're being tempted, Jesus was tempted, and I would say He's even tempted worse. Why? Because number one, Jesus is God. And the thought of temptation and worse than that, the thought of sin absolutely turned his stomach. There's some of us that still like playing with sin. You know, there's a little boy up on the little step stool in the kitchen with his hand in the cookie jar and his mom catches him. And she says, what are you doing? He says, I'm practicing not yielding to temptation. <laughs> but he's got his hands on the cookie. He just got caught. So for Jesus to be tempted in all ways that we are, he can be a merciful high priest. I'm not going to ask anybody to raise your hand and share your temptations with us, but here's what I want you to hear. However you're being tempted right now, Jesus has been tempted the same way, but without sin. Think about that for a minute. Think about somebody that was tempted just like you are and never yielded. You talk about the pressure cooker of temptation. Folks, once you yield to sin, the pressure's gone. Now, you feel guilty right afterwards, but at least the pressure's off. Jesus took the pressure time and time again and never yielded. So He knows where you're coming from. And He's able to come to your aid. Literally to aid or relieve. So folks, in this passage we see Jesus, who has conquered Satan on the cross, conquered the power of death, has freed us from that fear, and now constantly stands there praying on our behalf according to First John chapter 2. Constantly interceding on our behalf, knowing the temptations we're going through, and rushing to our aid. That's the Savior. That's the author, the leader, the pioneer of our salvation. Let's pray together. Father, wow. What a Savior. What a thought. What an understanding. To know that Jesus Christ left the glory of heaven And came to earth, part of the plan, the sovereign, perfect plan of God. So that through Him, we don't have to taste the kind of death that He did. As a child of God, He's paid that penalty and price for me. God, thank You for that. And God, I pray even this week when Satan tries his little schemes of tempting us to turn from God. God, would we know, hey, Jesus has been tempted in this same way. And He's provided a way of escape for me. And so I'm going to turn to Him instead of to this sin. Thank You for that truth. Thank You for the comfort we find in that kind of Savior. Thank You for Jesus. In His name we pray.